Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. In the space of one week in December last year, we lost two of the West Coast's literary greats. Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion passed away on the 17th and the 23rd, respectively. While their deaths may have coincided and at times their subject matter and indeed their lives crossed over, their approach and style diverged. Both notorious chroniclers of the sense and taste of people, places and moments, they're famed for their portraits of Hollywood and counterculture in 1960s and 70s. Los Angeles. They wrote with humour and irony, stark honesty and unerring observation. Babbitt's harnesses the riotousness of the City of Angels deep from within its messy centre. A technicolour romp through Hollywood and a who's who of the artists, musicians, writers and actors synonymous with the era. Her writing is littered with devastating one-liners and has a sharp wit that dares you to put down her book and go out and live harder. God forbid you be boring in Eve's world. Meanwhile, Didion, credited with discovering Babbitt's literary talents, is perhaps one step away from the mess, at times even further as she moves from Los Angeles to New York. While her writing is as personal as Babbitt's, she's also closer to the current affairs of the day, covering politics and major events of which Babbitt's steers clear. Her unsparing social commentary, often accompanied by a wry smile or a hint of that arched eyebrow. In their wake, both writers leave vacuums, their work products of their own lives as much as the goings-on around them at the specific time and place in which they worked. Yet they also expanded what women's writing is and can be, of how women write about rock and roll, grief, sex and cities. I'm joined today to unpack the imprint left by Joan Didion and Eve Babbitts, by Lily Analik, contributing editor at Vanity Fair and the author of Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitts and the Secret History of LA, and by David Ulin, Associate Professor of English at the University of Southern California and books editor of Alta Journal, a quarterly publication celebrating California and the West. And Lily, I've just read uh, an editorial in Vanity Fair, very brilliant it is too, where you say, well, I wrote the book on Eve Babbitts. So no pressure. I'm going to start with you. <laughs> can you define Eve Babbitts? Can you kind of delineate her style, both as a person and as a writer, first of all? What universe are we in with Eve? Well, I mean, Eve was a child of Hollywood. You know, um, her father was a studio musician who was also a Baroque musicologist. I think he was first chair at 20th Century Fox, and you can hear his violin in the, in the psycho score. But his his wife, May, was an artist, and they had a salon at the house that Eve grew up in on Cherimoya, and it was Stravinsky was Eve's godfather, and it was Jelly Roll Morton was there, Stuff Smith. It was kind of a... a sort of bursting at the seams with creativity. It was, it was going to happen somehow, you feel. Well, yeah, and what's interesting to me about Eve, I, I think in America, it's almost impossible to avoid the middle class. <laughs> it's impossible to avoid the middle class, but she did. Uh, her parents' house, it was kind of high art and it was European. Brett Easton Ellis, I think, called Didion the great snob and anti-snob. But to me, that's much more true of Eve. Eve went to Hollywood High. She did not go on to college. She had total scorn for that. She wouldn't go to UCLA. Um, I think regarded it as kind of hopeless, hopelessly bourgeois. And if you look at the way she kind of lived her life, you know, she was an autodidact and I think she used men as college. <laughs> you know, she would have, these, <laughs> it was kind of this great thing about her. She wrote this kind of famous mash note 
fan note, mash note to Joseph Heller when she was 18 or 19 saying, you know, I'm a stacked blonde, 18 years old, sitting on Sunset Boulevard. I'm also a writer. And he had just written Catch-22. He was probably the most celebrated writer in America at that time. And they began this kind of, um, it was was a romance, but he also kind of sponsored her work and he read her work and he critiqued her work. And that was kind of one of the ways she started to kind of become an artist. Whereas Joan went the traditional way. Joan went to Berkeley. I think she had hoped to go to Stanford. She wins a writing prize. She works at Vogue. She marries an Ivy League graduate. It's very tricky being a woman writer at this time. And they both had opposite ways of negotiating that path. And Eve's was to kind of fully immerse herself in the moment. She was a groupie on the Sunset Strip. I mean, she was having all these experiences. That's how she kind of arrived at a certain kind of truth. And that's how she started writing. Thanks for such a, a sort of a, a rip-roaring pressy of Eve Babbitt's an introduction actually to Joan because you're right they're sort of they're always they're considered to be in the same food group but they're kind of sort of chalk and cheese to a certain extent and I guess there's something kind of a bit sad that we lump them together as women writers both from Los Angeles I mean that's what we're doing on this program today but it's also interesting to sort of draw out the differences there David I wanted to, to ask you I just just sorry David I don't mean to be rude you have to lump them together you ha- absolutely have to lump them together. I mean, Eve does that in her first book, Hollywood's Eve. She, in her dedication, right, David, she says to the Diddy and Duns for having to be who I'm not. Right, exactly. They are yin and yang. Go ahead. Yeah, I I just was going to say, I think that's exactly right. It's part of the problem of the way that we think about women writers. It's also part of the problem of about the way we think about California writers and Southern California writers, that there's one or two representative voices or that there's a kind of, you know, there's got to be overlap because of the geographic overlap. And I think, you know, both categories are so much bigger than that. But it is absolutely true that they exist in some kind of I don't know, some kind of gravitational field with one with one <laughs> another, covering the same period of time from opposite ends of the telescope. Uh, yes, that dedication is, I, I always think about that dedication when I think about the, the, the two most of revealing. them. Yeah, the, and it's true. The Didion and Dunn were playing, in a way, an East Coast game from the West Coast. They were operating yeah. something that I think is less true now, but was certainly true even when I moved to California 30 years ago, that there is a kind of designated Southern California voice that New York will listen to, right? They turn to Joan Didion to explain Southern California to them or John Gregory Dunn. Meanwhile, Babbitt's to me is kind of just living in and not even explaining Southern California, but just sort of reveling and recording Southern California, partly for herself and for local readers as well. She's not trying to sort of be the representative voice. She's just representing herself. So you might say Eve Babbitt's is a sort of self-taught force of nature and Joan Didion has done it the East Coast way. She's kind of hiding in plain sight or something. I think an interesting thing is who they name as their kind of idols or models. And Joan Didion, it is always Hemingway, right? Mm -hmm. She would copy out his short stories. That's how she taught herself how to write. She always says she's picking a masculine voice, a journalistic voice, kind of a no fuss, no frills voice. And I think that's quite deliberate. And Eve says her model, even though Eve read everything, Eve says her model is Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> there's something I think you mentioned in that Vanity Fair article um, it's been mentioned before where it's that idea of someone asked Marilyn Monroe if she really wore nothing on a certain photo shoot maybe it's a Playboy photo shoot or something and she goes of course I had something on I had the radio on and you describe it Lily as a dumb blonde but super smart remark and, and I guess that was a mark of her writing as well right? It absolutely was and I actually you know I was out in Los Angeles for Eve's memorial and you know some archives got found that had not been found. You're gonna love this. <laughs> She's writing a letter to Joseph Heller and he gave her a blurb for Slow Days Fast Company that she found condescending. 
right? And she said, one of the things I'm starting to think about is that serious people just don't think that gossip is serious. I think that's because it's always been regarded as some devious woman's trick, some shallow, callow, shameful way of grasping situations without being in on the top conferences with the serious men. The idea of gossip has always been considered tisk tisk. Only how are people like me, women they're called, supposed to understand things if we can't get in the VIP room? And anyway, I can't stand meetings. I'd much rather figure out things from gossip. I think Eve kind of very much leaned into this idea that she absolutely was a woman and she was going to do things in a woman's particular way. And that was going to get shit on and scorned, but she was going to do it that way. And I think part of her kind of problem with Joan who was so important to her and was kind of the making of her was I think she felt that Joan kind of played that East Coast game, as David mentioned, and kind of picked men as models, like very deliberately kind of styled herself as kind of the female Hemingway, whereas Eve was going to come at it a totally different way, the Marilyn Monroe way, you know, in gossip, which is put down as a woman's trick, as she said, that was how she was going to tell her stories. She's got a very sort of having her cake and eating it sort of tone of voice there it's very Dorothy Parker it's kind of Oscar Wilde it's sort of kicking the table over once you've been invited into the sort of elite supper party isn't it it's very knowing David I'd like to turn to you to try to to get to grips with Joan Didion's kind of tone of voice as we were saying she sort of copied out Hemingway's stories in order to kind of I guess see how it was done but she's got a sort of Nabokovian amazing way with description no there are no lazy words in the sentence everything means something it's very freighted with meaning can you get to grips with with her style yeah I mean I think for me I'll just say that the voice I've been writing about this lately the voice was the thing that first attracted me you know I'd never read a voice like that I'd never read essays that worked that way when I first read Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And, you know, that was my gateway drug, as it is, I think, for most people who read Didion. You know, both the kind of the voice, there's a quality of distance, but also a quality of knowing. There's that kind of cool, ironic tone. She's the most amazing passive voice writer I've ever read in terms of using the passive voice as a kind of active weapon, let's say. And also, I think that something really interesting that she does is, I mean, I, I hate to be a nerd about this, but her use of pronouns, um, the way that she kind of elides from singular to plural, the way that she moves, there's one sentence or two sentences in her essay, Los Angeles Notebook, where she moves from I to we to one, Right. So, you know, from the individual to the collective to the kind of abstracted when she's talking about sort of knowing how the city would driving the freeway during the Watts riots, watching the city burn as one had always known it would be in the end. There's a really interesting move she makes there because what Didion is always writing about, and I think all writers are, but with Didion, I think it's really pronounced is her own kind of internal weather. But she also kind of projects that internal weather onto both the culture she's writing about and even the landscape that she's writing about. And so for me, the kind of the fluidity of that voice and yet the sharpness and specificity of that voice is, is the key to the whole project. Didion's masquerading, I think, as a kind of cultural commentator. I shouldn't say masquerading, but presenting, let's say, as a kind of cultural commentator. But in fact, what she's really doing is writing a very detailed interior emotional autobiography through what she's seeing. And I think that that distance that she cultivates, right, because unlike Babbitt, she's not an enthusiast. She's not jumping into the middle of it. She's sitting on the edge 
taking notes in that, again, as we talked about in that kind of wry knowing style, she's making judgments in those writings. If you think about the beginning of Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream, when she's making all of those judgments about San Bernardino and inland Southern California, all those class-based judgments. If you think about the passage in the White Album when she's in the studio with the doors and they're just kind of waiting for Jim Morrison to show up. It's, you know, for Didion, what they're doing while they're waiting is the most important part. And, you know, and in a way it allows her the space to reflect and to think and also to kind of continually establish her distance from what she's writing about. Well, David, that's so interesting you bring up the doors in the center will not hold the the Joan documentary. She says she loved the doors, but they were bad boys, right? Yeah. But she actually got introduced to Jim by Eve. Jim yeah. was, you know, a guy that, you know, one of Eve's little buddies, yeah. one of her little, you know, boyfriends. And um, it's so interesting to me because she says she likes bad boys, but she takes the detached kind of journalist point of view and writes about the session. You know, Eve's right up in there. You know, he's it's not just a sex symbol to Eve. He's somebody she's having sex with. And I actually think that dedication to the Didion Duns for having to be who I'm not, I actually think that's a sword that cuts both ways. Joan was incredibly supportive of Eve. Eve, who yeah. was very ambivalent about Joan, I found out this was from the archives, not only did Joan get Eve published for the first time by introducing Eve to um, Grover Lewis at Rolling Stone, she edited Eve's first book, Hollywood's Eve. And my own feeling, you know Joan's work so well, so you're going to be able to tell me which essay this was in when she said, Joan said, it's no coincidence that the kids I like to hang out with in high school like to hang out at gas stations. Yes, I believe that's in the White Album also, or maybe, I can't remember, but yes, I was just going to bring up that when you were talking about her affection for the for the Doors as bad boys. But David, the thing, if you look at Joan's career, she did not hang out with the kids in Absolutely the gas station. Absolutely not. Eve hung out with the kids in the gas station, and I think that's why she was so kind of appreciative and supportive of Eve. She was really generous with Eve, and I think she must have sensed some yin-yang thing and something about Eve really attracted her. She was the only one taking Eve seriously at that time. That's an excellent point, and I think that that line about the hanging out with kids in gas stations, which is a line I really like just as a piece of writing, always makes me laugh because I know it's completely, it's a total projection that has nothing to do with who she was probably really hanging out with in high school. <laughs> nothing, and if you look in high school, you know, Eve's hanging out with the Thunderbird girls, you know, and, and Joan, you know, you look, she was in Spanish club, she was on yearbook, you know, she was a rally girl or whatever the hell. She well, was, she was she was in that that high school sorority that met at the governor's mansion because Earl Warren's daughter was in the same high school sorority. <laughs> Honey Bear. She had a nickname, Honey Bear. Yeah, that girl. No, that's exactly right. But to me, it's like she was always kind of also kind of aspiring upward. And Eve was just Eve. I always think, you know, I'll you know, people will call her a star effer. I don't know if you can say. We're not the BBC. You can say star fucker, uh, Lily. Yeah. People, people will always say that about Eve. She was a star fucker, which she certainly was in a very literal sense. But I think it's because she liked aristocracy. You know, it's like stars of the aristocrats of America. I mean, she just didn't like to hang out with anyone in the middle. And if you look, it's really wild. You know, these journals of Eve's that just got found, you know, she refers to Joan never as Joan. She refers to everyone else by their first name. She calls her Mrs. Dunn and spells it D-U-N-N. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. What do, what do we feel about how much of Eve and Joan were in Eve and Joan's writing and obviously, let's take the non-fiction stuff uh, here I mean in your description David earlier of Joan Didion's work it seems like there was just enough of her and just enough of distance in that writing for it to be satisfying and re reward reading over the years and repeated reading that one is getting a picture of the writer while you're getting for me an amazing 
detailed picture of California in the 60s and 70s. The essay California Dreaming about the house on the hill, which is this sort of, you know, this sort of hyper powerful PR agency, you know, the kind of the men in grey suits kind of thing, as we might call it in the UK these sort of hyper detailed windows into the machinations of how California worked, the waterworks, the transport authority, computerization and all the rest of it, all these sort of should be boring subjects are injected with enough selfishness, just enough sort of solipsism in Joan Didion to to bring them alive for readers all over the world. And that is, is the trick just enough distance and just enough selfishness, I wonder? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think, first of all, I want to say that, you know, one of the sort of drawbacks of the last decade or so of Didion's career, well, starting with actually last 15 years, starting with the year of magical thinking, is that we end up thinking about her as a memoirist, which she really isn't. Mm. And I think even I would actually argue that the memoirs are among, are the least successful of the books in, in yes. some way. She loses, I think, a kind of uh, a context. And so mm. when you look at the essays, the earlier essays, or even the reporting like um, Salvador, Miami, where she is absolutely a character, but she's a character moving through a world and gathering information. What I think it's that balance. She does reveal an enormous amount about herself. If you read Slouching Towards Bethlehem or the White Album, you end up learning a lot of information about her life, about her history, about her family, about her psyche, without question. But it's always through the filter, or often, I should say, because there are personal essays in those books, Goodbye to All That, Notes of a Native Daughter. But it's often through the lens of what how she's responding to what she's observing. And so that she sort of paints an oblique or sort of secondhand portrait of herself. And I think that that fits, again, I'm, I'm only talking about the, the public persona, uh, her public persona rather than her, her private persona. I knew her, but not well enough to really know what she was like in, when she was kicking back. But I think that in terms of sort of the dynamic of that public persona, it becomes a mechanism for her to explore interior. It almost, it becomes a protective device through which she can explore the interior more fully. If you look again at the essay, The White Album, which includes the, you know, that, that pastiche, including her psychiatric evaluations and her packing list and all those kind of things, it looks like a grab bag of, of sort of stuff uh, on the one hand, but it begins to make sense. And even the way that she structures her, her sense of sort of losing faith in narrative, but yet still kind of depending on narrative in some way, you know, which she really starts to evolve in um, Los Angeles Notebook or the essay Slouching Towards Bethlehem, she begins to realize that the narrative she wants to write, both personal and cultural, don't have resolution or shape. So the only way to approach them is through fragments. And so I think that even the way the structures that she sort of, that she gravitates towards suggest that kind of atomization, that interior atomization that she's feeling, and then that she is projecting onto what she's seeing. I also think there's something emotionally pornographic about Joan that's so appealing. Emotionally pornographic, Lily. How, how does that manifest itself? That's, that's, a, that's a great phrase. I love that. She'll start, you know, a, a, an essay, you know, I'm in Hawaii in lieu of getting a divorce. Yeah. And, and then we'll mm. later reveal that John edited that passage, you know? <laughs> I think one of the most fascinating things about Joan is that she knew how to be a star. Yeah. You know, she is a celebrity writer. She performed herself. I mean, all of that is kind of thrilling and exciting about her. She knew it from early on. I mean, think about the, yes. the Julian Wasser photos of, you know, in front of the Corvette. I mean, that is, that is image creation. That is as much image creation as Jim Morrison in his quote unquote vinyl pants. Um, another one of my favorite lines of hers. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that is absolutely image creation in, without any question. I think that's and, absolutely and, right. And, and David, I'm telling you shit you already know. But of course, Eve's first kind of star act was 
posing naked, playing chess with Duchamp. Right. Yeah, yeah. But what I but what I always find fascinating is Wasser allowed her, you know, to choose the photograph, and she chose one that did not show her face. So it's a star turn while also maintaining her privacy. It's a star turn while maintaining her anonymity. And Joan, it's kind of the opposite. It's a tight kind of on her pretty face. And she's slender, but kind of not particularly sexual, you know, where mm -hmm. Eve out there with the double D breasts. And Joan seemed very shrewd to me about kind of both being kind of a pinup, but not sexualized. And I completely agree with you about the management of her image. She's master. Yeah, that, that I'm looking at the White Album cover here and that image on the cover with her and the, is it a Corvette? That car is doing the heavy lifting and she's she's allowed not to have to be the sex symbol. It's like Eve's boobs in that picture are doing the heavy lifting for her. It's such a an unobliquely sexual image or sexy image. And this one with the with the stingray, yeah, that, that car's doing the work so that she doesn't have to. Again, she's kind of passive in her own press shot, right? Somehow. It's very clever, I guess. It's very clever. It's true. And actually, David, something else you said about her being kind of the East Coast California rider. And I always felt that you know, Eve, I knew Eve quite well, and Eve was never bitchy or underhanded. If she didn't like someone, she'd say, so-and-so is my enemy. I hate her. Or <laughs> she'd say something like, I hope so-and-so burns in hell, right? <laughs> but about Joan, the barbed remarks, it was a much more convoluted relationship. And I always felt in Hollywood's Eve when she went after Nathaniel West for writing Day of the Locust and what a simple-minded, stupid view of Los Angeles this was, where it's Sodom and Gomorrah. I never know if I'm saying this right. You know, LA is a place that looks like heaven and feels like hell. Yeah. She hated this. And that's, of course, what Play It As It Lays is. To me, I mean, Joan, of course, had the, had the bigger career. I mean, it spanned decades and she was able to hit peaks again and again. But to me, Eve's masterpiece, Slow Days, Fast Company, is such a great it's a truer, kind of more comic, looser kind of view of Los Angeles that just feels emotionally truer and more sophisticated to me. Part of Joan's shrewdness is to kind of simplify things. I mean, I think that's the pleasure of, not, not always, not in her essays, certainly not. She's a very subtle thinker, but play it as it lays. View of Los Angeles to me is like a teenager's view. It's so reductionist. David, what do you think about that? You know, to be honest, I think Plato's Lays Unravel. I'm, I think it's yeah. beautiful. The language is beautiful. Again, I yeah. think the, the fragmentation is beautiful. I mean, for me, it also speaks a sort of Didion's way of thinking. For me, the most powerful parts of that book are just Mariah's inner life, yeah. her despair, the, the endless driving on the freeway, all of those kinds of things which capture that experience. But the dynamic, I'm not all that interested in Hollywood generally. So, But I do think, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that Didion stopped writing about Los Angeles. Guys, I wanted to ask you both about, you've mentioned atomization, certainly in Joan's work. I wanted to ask you about the nature of Los Angeles itself and how important that is as a character for both of these writers. Lily, obviously, Eve is bang in the center of, of Los Angeles and everything, as is Joan, although slightly on the periphery, you might say, in terms of her style. How much of Los Angeles is important to these women as writers? I think even the, the city were one in her mind. I think that's why she would- Couldn't have happened anywhere else, could it? Yeah, it couldn't have happened anywhere else. And I actually, again, to go back to her masterpiece, Slow Day's Fast Company, which is also a fragmented book. It's, look, it's yeah. looking at the city from Bakersfield, from Emerald Bay and Laguna Beach. It's from the Garden of, not the Garden of Allah, but the Chateau Marmont, the new Garden of Allah <laughs> in her mind. I, that's how she looks at the city. It's, it's prismatic. Whereas Jones, certainly in, in Play It As It Lays, which is her Hollywood novel, it's, it's kind of unifocal. We keep coming back to this Jim Morrison moment, you know, um, is in White Album. I can hear the swish of the vinyl trousers. 
Yes, those final <laughs> chapters where he's dropping the lit matches, you know, and yeah. no one looks at this as this kind of sinister, you know, devilish, you know, Norman Mailer of the top 40 kind of moment. And Eve said to me, she was there. He was just flirting with her. You know, Jim was trying to flirt with her, you know, but she's sort of seeing it as this kind of um, satanic, you know, rock and roll as channeling Satanism moment. It, that just seems to me so kind of representative of how these two women looked at things, you know? So yes, it was atomized in Eve as well, but just kind of more free flowing, you know? So there are you know, multiple responses to atomization. One is to plunge fully into it and embrace it or enjoy it. The other is to fret about it. And I think that's the difference. And, and yes. again, I think that has, that's a personality difference as well. I mean, I think both of them reflect that atomization. I think it's impossible not to write about the city with a sense of that because it's a city that is by its nature atomized. Yes. Um, although yeah. that atomization is also where its center is. I mean, the great paradox of Los Angeles is the chaos becomes the order. You just have to yeah. like see it through the right set of eyes. And I think both of them were seeing it and responding to it, but just responding to it each according to their own personality, their own mechanisms. So shocking to me recently was like this kind of new discovery. It was how good Joan was to Eve. That is what I kind of can't get over. I mean, she was so generous with her. I just, to me, that's not obvious in her writing. I mean, she always talks about being shy and kind of inward, but she was, she was so helpful to her. And Eve was clearly so conflicted about her. So I just, I always find that interesting. Yeah, I find that fascinating too. Although I do think, you know, there are other examples of of Didion's generosity, you know, to writers like T.J. Waldy and other, you know, other writers who, you know, uh, which is always, or even, you know, there was a, a piece in the LA Times last week by Deborah Miller, who is now a retired school teacher, who was Debbie Miller, the 14-year-old daughter of Lucille Miller and Gordon Miller. There's a, you know, and and, and she describes that them being brought together. She first of all describes always sort of hating that essay and then um, describes kind of coming to a reckoning with Didion and Didion being extremely generous and welcoming to her as well. So I think there is this, again, that's the sort of the human side beneath the, the veneer, yeah. beneath that kind of managed image or managed career that you were talking about, Lily. I think there's you know, she was careful about revealing that material, partly perhaps because of journalistic distance, I think more because of um, emotional distance or emotional self-protection or self-preservation. She wanted that facade, that image that she created is another sort of distancing mechanism by-, by Absolutely, or it just didn't fit the brand in a way. Yeah, or it didn't exactly. fit the image, you know, yeah. but it was kind of sweetness to Eve who, who, by the way, when Evie was like bottoming out on Coke in the late seventies, she was so surly and difficult. And Joan was really just kind of just totally understanding and and, and generous about it. Anyway, I, I'm sorry, Robert, go ahead. No, it's okay. I think we've kind of come to the end of our time. I wanted to to end, actually. Lily, you quoted Eve in Vanity Fair in, in one of your pieces saying, and she, she said, in Los Angeles, it's hard to tell if you're dealing with the real true illusion or the false one. I guess it's true of the city. It's true of Eve. Uh, and it might be said that it's true of, of Joan as well, but fortunately not your forensic reading of both of those women's um, work. David and Lily, thank you very much. By the way, I'm sitting here. I have the White Album on my desk. I have the Everyman of Joan Didion and Eve's Slow Days and Fast Company. There's a couple more volumes on the shelf. But what for you are the essentials? Lily, what's the essential Eve and the essential Joan for you? If if our listeners were to choose uh, one book from each. Slow Days and White Album. Okay, I've got two of the tick those off. Uh, David, for you, uh, which which of the two you take to the desert island? I would probably take those two. For me, it's always a difficult choice between Slouching and the White Album, um, which I kind of think of as one long project in two parts. Me too. But but if I was going to have to pick one, I'd probably pick the White Album and absolutely Fast Days for 
for Babbitts. Yeah, Eve makes it easy. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. Bang. It's the greatest hits. And it's also an album. There you go. Lily and David hardly needed me to be the referee in that uh, boxing match. Or was it a love-in? Um, so thank you very much to my guests, Lily Analik and David Ulin. And that is all we have time for today. Monocle and Culture was produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our sound engineer is Steph Chung-Goo. I've been Robert Bounds. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the time being, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you.